Hi, uh, my name is Ashley Rivera, and this is my appendage, uh, Better Late Than Never, to the interview that I conducted with Derek Sitter on the 28th of April, 2023. Um, Derek is a filmmaker, a, a brilliant, compassionate filmmaker, and I don't use those adjectives lightly, by the way, um, but you'll see, uh, you'll see for yourself. Um, he is a filmmaker and an actor. He's a member of SAG and um, an elected lifetime member of the Actor Studio, which is uh, a really cool factoid that I don't think we actually got around to mentioning in the interview, which is really strange. Anyway, uh, we launched our chat uh, right, right off the bat. Um, we talked about bug tussle because that's essentially the big thing that's happening right now. That is his uh, short film. Well, kind of long for a short film, as he says, but nevertheless, it is still racking up awards on the film festival circuit right now um it uh it had recently picked up uh another of a growing list of awards and you will learn all about that in the interview he ended up surprising me with quite an education about the way that different filmmakers including himself approach sentimentality in their films um, sentimentality was not something I had ever really given much thought to. Um, he named Martin McDonough, uh, very specifically and emphatically as a filmmaker whose approach to that very concept he greatly admires. He also named, uh, Spielberg in, in contrast, uh, as someone who is more manipulative and, uh, I guess, shall we say, um, overindulgent when it comes to sentimentality. Um, Derek obviously vastly prefers the way McDonough is never excessive or prolonged in his use of the sentimental. And I was absolutely riveted during this part of the conversation. Derek also amazed me with his words about new beginnings. Uh, like so many playwrights and filmmakers whom he admires, um, he prefers the new beginning. I really enjoyed the part when he recalls the dialogue in True West by Sam Shepard. Um, one, one brother said to the other, brother, um, I, I love sunsets. And the, the other brother said, he prefers the new beginnings, actually, the sunrise. And it, it opens up a new beginning, you know, an, uh, an ending really is a beginning. And um, I just think that's such a powerful, powerful concept. And it's so true. And it, we, we see this in Derek's films, in Bug Tussle, so... Uh, it, it it's it it's so prevalent. Um, the interview was a 
about two and a half hours long total. It might have been three hours, but cutting out some of the uh, unnecessary things, it, it whittled, we've whittled it down a little bit. Um, that's why at first I, I released it in four parts. Um, however, in this version, uh, it's all smushed together. Um, Derek was very keen to talk about the film that he is currently conceiving. Um, the intriguingly titled Brain Slut. Um, he sent me the script for Brain Slut to read before the interview. And he amazed me again when he mentioned that Brain Slut will be a complete departure or largely a departure from his uh, normal way of shooting films. Instead of the more character dialogue driven approach we see in Bug Tussle and Tutu Grande, his 2018 film, Brain Slut will be his first foray into a, a much more visually centered approach. Derek was very forthcoming about his personal struggles and the way they have influenced, driven, and inspired his execution as a filmmaker. He touched briefly on his early life in Oklahoma, but it was it, it was it was actually the real catalyst um, that opened him up on this lifelong devotion to a creative life was um, his experience at LSU as a student. Um, as a, a, a graduate student in the MFA program, studying under uh, acting professor John Dennis. Um, yeah, so there's there's more about that in the post-interview article that I wrote. I'll put the link in the show notes, among other relevant links. Now, I really hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did as as much as I enjoyed listening to Derek. And so without further ado, I give you Derek Sitter. You know who I am, you weird son of a bitch. Okay, wow. Go on. Wow, that was fun. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So uh Mr. Derek Sitter, welcome. Thank you for for uh meeting with me. Um of course, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Okay. Um so uh as you can see, um I wanted to start out with Bug Tussle, um, because that's what's kind of happening right now. I mean, you just uh got back you're in Oregon again. Uh, you're at home in Oregon, um, but you were in Atlanta uh recently. Yep. Um, um you don't mind, let's let's uh let's dive right into um what's going on with Bug Tussle. It's obviously uh winning an, an incredible amount of awards. Um and what the the latest award. Um, best dark comedy at uh well I, I'm, I'm gonna give you the floor um tell, tell me all about it <laughs> so well it was at um <clears throat> atlanta after dark film festival okay um 
and it's part of the uh, film festival circuit that uh, I think they have about mm, 32 festivals across the country. And they were also the Oregon Short Film Festival. So it's well, not necessarily the same people, but they are the same um, organization. And <clears throat> we're always in Atlanta. We were, we were at uh, Southern Shorts Awards which was also in Atlanta. Uh, I've been there before at a, a live events. This past year was a, a virtual event. Um, and I think we wrapped up three or four awards there um, at the Southern Shorts. And then um, went to Atlanta after dark with you know no real expectations. I just love traveling, going to film festivals. Wow. And I was spending a week checking out Atlanta, checking out the market, checking out you know, even home prices, think, things about maybe a possibility of moving there. And went to the festival that day. And um, yeah, they uh, they uh, called Buck Tussle. And the, the funny thing, um, <clears throat> and this goes along with pretty much my entire career, is uh, a lot, of, a lot of the times you don't, you don't submit your categories. You just submit, and okay. usually the category is short film. Um, sometimes more genre specific film festivals, you know, they'll they'll ask you what category are you submitting in. But uh, it's it's interesting that regionalisms exist so much and particularly in the states that you could watch Buck Tussle in Texas which we were there um, and it was a, it was a dark uh, no it, it was a comedy in Texas in Atlanta it was a dark comedy and in Oregon, it was a dark drama. So the the response, the reaction of Bug Tussle, and it was similar with Tutu Grande as well, is all over the map. And I actually love that because it's it's been kind of a constant within my work in my career is particularly in the film industry, not so much in the theater, but in the film industry is people need stereotypes people need prototypes they need labels so they know where to place things i never fit into any of them like i was just a i was just an actor from oklahoma who was a little wild a little crazy find out a little later he's a little bipolar um but the the energy of the <clears throat> the work uh, the influences of the work, you know, um, I, I've never genrefied anything in my life. You just, you just trust a vision yeah, and you execute it. And yeah, I think I probably am a little aware that some of my stuff's a little outrageous. Sometimes I, tr as much as I try to avoid sentimentality, um, there's, uh, I'd like to think it's more, it has always has some heart and some passion behind it rather than wallowing in sentimentality. But with Bug Tussle, <clears throat> it, you know, the response is uh, all over the map. 
Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me how different because some people <clears throat> literally love Buck Tussle and others absolutely hate it. I'm like, okay. But you mentioned that you try to avoid sentimentality. What what do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of, um, and particularly with the influences, particularly the writing influences, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, cinema and theater. <clears throat> uh, and I would even say novelists uh, that really dive into sentimentality and try to tug on the heartstrings. And um in, that that goes with you know not only maybe the performances but you know the the very uh, melancholy sound design and they're really just kind of sucking you in looking for a tearjerker type moments you know some are just genuinely heartfelt and you you end up crying but there are a lot of filmmakers that and playwrights and directors that really look out go go after that they they want to be a little heavy-handed at tugging on the heartstrings well there's some moments in pretty much all my work where there's a potential for that and i so hate it that like i i i i want you to empathize i i i want you to be invested into the characters, but some of, probably most of the influences I have towards the writing portion uh, are playwrights. And some of my favorite playwrights uh, are, you know, um, Sam Shepard, of course, um, David Mamet, um, Martin McDonough, Edward Albee, Harold Pinter, um, they're they're the perfect examples of avoiding sentimentality, and how they do that. And it's 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 not necessarily a story device. I just think organically they they understand that. Oh, I know this is probably a moving moment that they've written. That's probably quite heartfelt, but. Right at the moment where it may seem to be a tad heavy-handed, they'll insert some comedy or something random or something irreverent that just takes you out of that, like, I've accomplished what I've done. Now we're going to move on. Okay. Where other times I see directors just wallow. And let's just say it's, it's, it's a, a funeral. And everybody's very moved and you'll see them, you'll hear the music and you'll see all the, it's just, and it's so manipulative and it's just so, and I, I shut off as a viewer. I just shut off. I'm like, oh, just take me out of this. But what, like McDonough's brilliant at it, particularly in Banshee, Banshees of Inner Sharon, but his, his plays like Pillow Man and um, Beauty Queen of Lanane and uh, almost all of his work, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, he he knows when things are, and Sam Shepard was great at it too. They they know when things are potentially moving, but they're not going to wallow in the 
the sentimentality of uh, the circumstance. And it's important, I think, to uh, avoid that. Yeah. And it's kind of like Shepard said, Shepard had opportunity in all of his work where things could have been written and ending um, to where it's quite quite moving and it's quite tidy at the end. But he, he never did that because he always says he prefers beginnings and new beginnings. And that's how I always love to like when I start thinking about wrapping up a film or a story, uh, even if I'm directing a play, I'm going to wrap this up as a new beginning, perhaps a little hope along with some tragedy or some comedy, what, what, whatever it is. Um, and like True West is a perfect example. You know, it could have been, um, it, it's so ambiguous how he ends the, the play where the two brothers just staring at one another not knowing exactly what their future is. And it's it's ideal. And if you look at McDonough, it's, uh, if you've seen Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, the whole objective from Frances McDormand was to, you know, catch her daughter's killer. But when you get to the ending, and the, no spoilers, but if you get to the ending, she, she never accomplished that goal whatsoever, even though that ended up being the plot of the film. Um, but what she they did accomplish in the ending, to me, was much more profound. And same thing with Banshees of Inna Sharon. It, it was much more profound ending and ambiguous, but more importantly, I think, a new beginning. And I think that's why uh, I like to think of it as uh, absurdity, particularly from theater of the absurd, that, that when you look at like work of Edward Albee, uh, he does the same thing. And if you look at the work of Steven Spielberg, it's profoundly different because he's always tugging at your heartstrings. Oh. And I find it manipulative. I don't I I I I think they know exactly what they're doing. They're they're master craftsmen. They 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 just tell stories, wrap them up in tidy little packages and tug on your little heartstrings to make sure you have a happy little ending. And you know, that work just doesn't interest me. So. Yeah, they kind of get you with the the music. They they really do. But um, yeah, you know, there are always little children involved and the teary eyed, and you know, it's just it's 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 fine. If that it's just not my thing. New be- it's the new, it's the new beginning thing that I that I love so much. And Shepard had quoted he was quoted saying that in an interview, and <clears throat> and. In fact, it's actually in the dialogue of True West. I haven't where, read it. Uh, because one of them's a writer. Okay. And these, he says, um, uh, "Oh, I." They're both very intoxicated, I think, in the third act, and and the writer says, "Oh, uh, uh, I love." I can't remember which one says what, but but this one says, "I, uh, I love beginnings." Because the more I think the morning sun was coming up, and the other one says I always preferred endings myself or something like that. Or it, it but that was a through line through all of his work. That well, along with his father, of course, and yours too. I mean, Bug Tussle. I'm I'm not going to spoil the ending, but the ending is totally a new beginning. Yeah, I mean, you have no idea what's going to happen. 
with Crow. You you just don't, you're like, okay, you know, anything could happen. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, yeah. it, I mean, it's an ending for yeah. sure, but it's not tidy. Um, where we know exactly what happened and here's the end thank you for watching it's 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 you don't i i think i think all great stories and i'm not saying my stories are great but i think all great stories leave you know and, and i'm not saying leaving open for a sequel i'm saying they leave it open for the viewer or the reader to let that journey continue with their own experiences and references. And I think it's probably different for everybody who watches it. I've, I've been with people who've asked me uh, what happened at the end. And I just always said, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's the ending. What do you think? And I, there was, I remember one guy said, he said something uh, to me. Said, well, he heard the silent signal. I'm like, certainly a possibility. And I was, I was even proud somebody picked that up because that was very specific dialogue. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it is Crow story one. And you had to have crows through through line from point a to point b and what happens at the end is crows still crow story yeah and you have when you write anything it's it's character in conflict and if you look at crow um he he's in a, a good amount of conflict and obstacles and Coy being the biggest one. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in storytelling, and fundamentally, it's it's pretty simple. But within the story, uh, I ho I'd hoped to reveal a great deal about who these people were. And then when you always, when you start thinking about an ending, sometimes I have an ending before I have a beginning. But and I never really know. Sometimes I look back at endings when I've written something or directed something, look back on it, and I have no idea where it, where it came from. To this day, I probably don't know why I wrote that. But I know it wasn't in the original. Oh, okay. The original being the Koi and Crayon. <laughs> well, I, it, you know, this this story's been around for a long time in my head. I think the first time I we, I was doing a showcase in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, it was all it was about six of us. Uh, everybody was doing a um, one man, you know, six seven minute um, performance, and I preferred to do a scene, so I wrote this short five minute scene called Poncho and Lefty. <clears throat> and um, it was very, it was same circumstance, trapped in this barn. And then um, 
that was it with, with that. But many years later, um, we were doing another one of those 72-hour uh, film challenges. And I'm like, oh, I have a script. And so we went found a location. And I cast one of my students. And I think we did that in two shots. And that was uh, Cody No Crow. Then it stuck, stayed in my computer forever. But uh, I, I'd actually I'd written a full-length feature of Poncho and Lefty. And the, uh, of course, the Crow character was Poncho. He was uh, Hispanic. Um, and then eventually uh, it turned into um, this 20-minute uh, minute short which is just the ending there. I, I, I tried to put as much history and backstory of each character in the dialogue and in the performances as I could in the 20 minutes, but there's still a whole lot. You don't know how they got in this situation to start with. And that's Amp and Darlene. And there, there's, there's, there's the, 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 the gambling, the uh, the you know the cockfights I mean there there's a lot that led them up to this point that there's a, there's a lot of story there yeah so you know it still may end up being a feature oh that would be cool um when are uh people going to be able to I mean is it going to stream at some point um, yeah yeah okay the festivals um um. Tutu Grande was in festivals forever. And I think it's still in festivals um, because I get hit up and people asking me, directors ask me, hey, can you please submit Tutu Grande? And they give me a, a waiver code and I'll say, sure. Uh, in fact, we were just in one in uh, Berlin. And, um, but it's usually a couple of years. Okay. Uh, in the, festival circuit uh depending on how successful it is um i think buck tussle's too long for a lot of festivals um 20 minutes is really pushing it now for short film festivals 20 minutes is more acceptable um i judge film festivals so when i see a 20 minute short i just i go Okay, it's gonna be good because uh, it's twenty minutes. Okay. You know, there's a five-minute shorts. They're you know they're micro shorts. They're mid-length shorts. You know, twenty minutes is a long short. Uh, Thirty minutes is a really long short. Um, but if you're if you're submitting to film festivals, uh, what's interesting. Some, especially some of the bigger ones, you, because I understand, I've been mean, going to festivals since, you know, the 90s. And, and the one thing that I've, I've noticed that particularly with short films, if you're going into some of the bigger festivals, uh, sometimes a short will begin a block of right before a feature. So 
a five to 10 minute short fits in there perfectly to screen prior to a feature. Because, you know, they get so many submissions, they only have so much time throughout the festival to screen these films. And some of these festivals screen your film three or four times throughout the weekend. So you're traveling to different theaters watching your film and doing the Q&A. A 20-minute short is hard to fit because it's a lot of time because some festivals only uh, have so much time. Right. So they they may not even watch it. They may see the 20 minutes and go, yeah, no, not enough time. Um, and so you, so you have to be really, really aware, particularly in the, the circuit, but when, to answer your question, is when we start, when I start getting uh, more selections or more rejections, I'll get more of an idea of how long Buck Tussle will be in the circuit before it goes public. Because it's usually uh, required that it is not public. Uh, and they love premieres. They love premieres in their own city. They love uh, premieres uh, in their own state, perhaps. And if you're public anywhere, YouTube, Vimeo, Amazon, Netflix, wherever, you're you're immediately declined because you're public. So you just you just give it time and wait. So yeah, so it could be a couple of years. Um... Yeah, I mean, there's there's still a lot of festivals we're waiting because uh, some festivals, uh, you know, may have two a year. There are some that are actually monthly. There are some that are quarterly. Um, so the ones that are like once a year, they have one festival, four days uh, a year. A Thursday through a Sunday. So you're still waiting on the selection for the 2023 festival. And they, the notification date may not be till June, may not be till October. So I don't know. So I just, I can't until I get the rejection or selection, I can't go public because right. it's an immediate rejection as soon as they find out you're, you're, you're public. Okay. Okay. Um, so I think uh, a great through line um, for everything is, uh, you know, with, with your films, with all of them, I think the biggest through line that, that I can see is that you're writing about people that are, you know, they're obviously at the bottom Crow and Coyote are certainly, um, they can't, they, they, there's, there's no way out for them. You know, I mean, maybe with Crow at the end with, uh, you know, again, I don't want to do the spoil it, spoil it, but, um, you, you don't kind of know what he's going to do at that point, but I don't know, for me, I kind of assume that he's going to continue. I don't, I don't, I don't know that he's going to be able to get out of trouble. What is it, you know, about broken people? Yeah. Broken people. There you go. That's, a, that's yeah. it. That's it. Broken. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's not only as an actor, uh, 
and director and writer. Yeah. That's always what I'm attracted to. Um, I find them the most interesting people. Uh, um, uh, even, you know, even when I was in, 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 in college, you know, those were the characters I, I, I wanted. I wanted to dive into these broken human beings. <clears throat> and I think, and I, and I think, I don't necessarily think uh, of theme when I'm writing or directing. I certainly am aware that it's there. But story's king. I, 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 I try to tell the story. But for me and my approach is because I'm an actor and classically trained as an actor, I'm always approaching it through a character study. And for me, <clears throat> probably because where I grew up, or I should say where I was born uh, in Oklahoma and the people that I was surrounded by, in small town Oklahoma um, <clears throat> then eventually uh, <clears throat> regardless of my uh, experiences uh, eventually when my when I became aware that there was something wrong with me and other people have always known there was a little something off. And there were, there were words like edgy and crazy. And, you know, my nickname at LSU was Crazy D. That's what everybody called me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I took that with pride. I was like, yeah, yeah, I did right. Uh, and I still at this point, I, I still do. Um People, you know, that 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 term crazy in a good way, you know, whatever that bullshit means. But to me. And it will always be a through line is and there's that, uh, you know. Everyone has a story. Yeah. And I always like to think of it like. If you read a headline online on some news site of what occurred in Bug Tussle, it would tell you zero about who these people were. They're only going to mention the crime oh, yeah. and the crimes committed. They're never going to explain their story i'm always interested in people that you that and i still i still see it every day that you could be walking down the street and you see the guy who who uh has clearly got something going on he may be talking to himself he may be you know twitching you know there's something and people will make a point to avoid them whereas i think i'm the guy that's going to go out and say hey man how are you yeah how can, how can i help you what's going on today because i, I understand them and yeah. i want to know how i can help 
And I've always been that way since I was a kid. The, the, there's that there's that you know phrase where you know uh, always be kind because ever, uh, everyone's got a, a going through a struggle or um, has a story that you know nothing about. Um, and, and it's it's so true. It, it and I'm sure it's a lot of it's influenced. Uh, you know, watching my father uh, as a child. Um, struggle with uh, mental illness um, and you know there's there was always uh, particularly where I, where, where, where I grew up again where I was born I certainly didn't grow up in Oklahoma um, there was always uh, addiction uh, mental health issues, uh, trauma. There, it was, it was, it was a completely, it's a completely different family dynamic in southeastern Oklahoma. I don't know why. There's nothing necessarily right or wrong about it. It's just the culture. Um, and then it eventually led to uh, my own personal struggles with. Uh, it's interesting. When you're bipolar, particularly the the the, the manic portion of it, um, <clears throat> which is where most people saw me most of the time, and like, wow, what's going on with this guy? He's 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 just kinetic. It just it's it's constant. I didn't understand it. Didn't care to think about it. I just did it, and there was nothing wrong with it. Especially in your twenties, I mean, it was your it was your superpower. It's like, let me go on stage, let's go. And why they call it manic depressive, bipolar. Eventually, that's going to crash. Mm. Now, that's the ugly, ugly, ugly darkness of. Uh, the disorder and particularly bipolar depression it's 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 profoundly different than uh, 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 someone who is suffering from from just depression because people who are depressed can be prescribed an antidepressant there are other things you can do uh you can't do that with the bipolar because they're already so jacked up hmm. that, and I've had doctors make the mistake. Oh, well, here's here's this, here's this. I was a guinea pig. Try this, try this. Lost my mind every time I took one. And I didn't know why. I, I didn't know why, but I was, I got to where I was so, so sick. And it was it was probably five years into being in an LA. And then at that point I was working a lot. Um and I, I got to a point where I, I just had to quit because I couldn't audition, I couldn't I couldn't do anything. And uh but through the journey of becoming well again mm -hmm. and understanding darkness 
so clear and understanding suicidal ideation and understanding um, the intense uh, darkness and hopelessness to where you, if you're lucky enough, you come out of it and you've learned to stabilize it and learn not only learn how to cope with it, but how to actually use it to your advantage. Um, but because of what I went through and how I came out and literally metaphysically, metaphorically woke up to presence, I had the ability to look back on and go, I don't think people truly, truly understand the struggles that every human being deal with maybe on a daily basis, regardless if they're bipolar or not. There's the, so many things impact our behavior and who, how we deal and cope with yeah. daily circumstances. I'm interested in those people. I'm interested in telling their stories. I am interested in revealing that, and I think we talked about it briefly in chat, that, uh, you know, I'd like it to be as common to walk into a room, and I do it, but I like it to be common, you know, if, 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 if that, hey, uh, um, I'm bipolar and I, I suffer from acute anxiety disorder because of it. And I'm also a highly sensitive artist. So I, I function a little differently than most people. So, uh, me actually doing the work or, or writing work, it, it comes, uh, I, I wouldn't say necessarily easy for me, but it, it comes to me, uh, organically and celestially to where I can execute it. But me and sitting in this room with five of you on leather couches, putting a lot of pressure on me, if I could have 20 seconds, that'd be great. So I can just break the ice and do what you need me to do. Uh, that's not, not even allowed. You're probably not even going to get the job because you said it. I don't need the crazy person on set. But if I walked in and said, you know what, uh, my blood sugar's low, I have diabetes, if I could have 20 seconds just to, so I can, uh, you know, or uh, I'm on cancer medication, uh, I'm going through chemotherapy, so if I can have, you know, 10 minutes, not a problem. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'd prefer that we look at people that are broken, and uh, there's a long history of artists um that particularly ones in their 20s that's about when it hit me really hard um that their disorder um uh, whatever it is is probably the source of their gift yeah. they're, they're remarkably creative people but you could there's a long history of these broken people that you could look at and go i can't believe this person didn't make it past 27 and I look at it and go I know exactly why they didn't make it at 27 they didn't have the coping skills to deal with who they were nobody has the coping skills at 27 to deal with that shit nobody 
So I would rather tell, like when I see these biopics, um, I get so frustrated and I can't watch them. Like I hated Elvis. I just couldn't watch it because uh, it was a similar with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like, you know what? Why, why don't we look at why they're gone? They're, the struggles. Let me understand them more. Let me really get in. People go, oh, that's too dark. People don't want to see that. You don't know what people want to see. Show how Freddie Mercury had uh, struggles and why he was so damn gifted. Uh, Elvis, when his mother died, was one of he's he even said it one of the most profound moments of his life. And when they told the story, just I think a scene was he was in his mother's closet or holding on his sleeve or something like really seriously, that's what you're going to give him. Sentimentality, yeah. Not, it was only sentimental and you know manipulative. It didn't reveal anything to me. Yeah. It broke the man. It broke him. Yeah. So I'm interested. <clears throat> probably will spend the rest of my life telling stories about uh, people that I think most people wouldn't even give a second glance on the street. Yeah, or may label them like stay away from them. They're crazy. Uh, I I want to. I, I I like those people. Yeah, yeah, me too. Actually, <laughs> so empathizing. So 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 if you look in in short, and I'm not going to give away in bug tussle, but be, because we're talking about bug tussle, mm -hmm. if you look at what these two men did, if you just listed what they did. Their actions. Shot, you know, a farmer shot the, but the Teller, lady. Or, yeah. The other one shot somebody else. I mean, they're criminals. Yeah. They're murderers. They're, 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 they're addicts. Um, where that's all you're going to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. My goal in telling the story was I'm hoping that <clears throat> you forgot all about that. You started understanding about the relationship of these two guys. Actually, and yeah. not and empathizing with them. <clears throat> and even if you don't empathize with them, at least you understanding them and where they came from. And that's the goal. And you almost forget about, oh, these are really not really good people i did i did forget about it actually I, I barely kind of even thought about the bank teller that was shot because i'm so i'm like who are these people like that's that's what i wanted to know as a viewer and then okay let's do a little segue into tutu grande um because I think um, you kind of flipped the script there, right? I mean, is that kind of a way to put it? Like, it's it's almost like, so the crime was the rape, but actually the story is this, the father trying to get consequences um, 
I love that word that you use in the movie, the consequences. Um, you need to know there need to be consequences. Um, so. Um, and what are those consequences? It, I mean, that's, that's something I love to explore. I've done a lot of research on the death penalty and, and, and uh, I've always thought to myself, you know, in studies that, is that really a consequence? I mean, it's certainly an option yeah. for many states. Uh, eye for an eye. It's like, this is the way it's going to go, man. Um, and, but I did explore with that story. I want, because again, you are looking at a, a, a rapist and you're looking at a father. And if you, if you, if you kind of delve into the character of the father a little bit, you probably get to understand that he's probably not a very good person either. And yeah. that this is going to probably not going to end very well. Um, but what it came to uh, initially when I wrote, started writing the, the dialogue, essentially it was a monologue at that point about consequences and about trauma. Mm-hmm. And about, you know, uh, uh, what are these consequences? And he goes through them and uses examples of what trauma could be. Do you understand trauma? What? Trauma, you know, trauma. Like, like, like in, like in football, when, when you, they get hit in that. <laughs> Like that? And, but when getting to to the ending was, uh, wasn't a trick. I mean, there's a lot of writers who love to make a surprise twist for the sake of having a surprise twist. And sometimes I think they're fine. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's just a trick. And I could have written, anybody could have written that. In fact, there was a complete alternate ending to Bug Tussle that we should talk about one time. But <clears throat> what you have to look at whose who's story is Tutu Grande? I mean, is it is it the rapist? Is it the father? Who's growing? Who's changing? in that story and that's when I consciously went the father probably under any other circumstance or any other time of this circumstance we pretty probably pretty sure what this man's going to do this is this is going to be something um that he's going to have a pretty violent response to but that didn't interest me so much 
what interested me was how could he possibly grow from this and not only grow as himself from experiencing trauma himself, but how could he actually help the young man truly understand and truly have a impact, a forever impact and trauma. That's when I finally came up with the ending like, oh, I got I got it. And that's when I revealed the the ending that it yeah I think people are often surprised like whoa didn't expect that but it was more that I wanted to explore another way of outside of violence outside of you know uh, the, the typical ways we deal with this is maybe this is his way of forgiving this young man, but not without a consequence. He's going to go, like he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take care of my little girl. And he does. And maybe that's not something he would have normally done. I believe stories should, should try to capture uh, the climaxes of life, the extraordinary moments of someone's life uh, and I think this was a very 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 important for all the characters involved a, a significant moment in their lives that likely changed them all forever and it's um, it's a <sighs> It's it's not a um, it's it's not always not it's not I don't people say things that, are, that it's a challenging it's suspenseful it's intense you know and, and I don't think about things like that when I write I I write about challenging material but I don't think about it as challenging material I go straight to the gut because I don't see light without extreme darkness so that's just where I go because of what we talked about earlier have to see the darkness we have to see even with the the new script i mean it doesn't get much darker in a human's being's life to where he's at right now at the beginning of this film um and exploring how they're going to get out of it uh, that's character in conflict where it's the start with the darkness and the, the perhaps the tragedy and, and and then take them into a journey to where maybe we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but at least we saw them try to get out of it. And that's where I start. Layers and layers and layers of of uh, of, of biography that's as specific as yours and mine. And then add a bunch of other layers that um, uh, 
are are damaged. Wow. Okay. Um. So where? How did you get into filmmaking? Where Where did it start for you? Um. So at this, you know, after uh, graduate school, uh, you know, I I started working right away. Um, graduated in 94. I think I got my SAC card in 95. Uh, I started working consistently. Uh, and so as an actor, you know, being, uh, you know, in, in film and television, commercials, music videos, et cetera, um, it was interesting is, is it never really was enough. Uh, theater was always plenty. Because you you've got six weeks of rehearsal sometimes, three weeks of rehearsals just depending on the production. You get time to develop these characters. You really get time to rehearse with the other people, and it, it it's a much more gratifying experience for me as as an artist. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if 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 you if you really dive into a character and really dive into the story, uh, the moment. Once you reach the green room, when the production's over and the show's over, there's an exhilaration there that that it's almost impossible to explain. That it's this is what I'm supposed to do. This I've just emptied a vessel. I've just left everything I have on the stage. Film television rarely gives you that opportunity. John will tell you the same thing. John even mentioned that Bug Tussle is like one of the most challenging things he's done in 33 years. And that's why theater offers and so many, uh, you know, uh, celebrity actors uh, go back to the theater because that's where they're challenged. But so I was after I uh, quit in L.A., you know, due to illness and and some other factors. a lot of it was because I didn't like it. I, 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 I think part of maybe my depression was just like, okay, I'm on TV. I'm on, I'm doing movies. I'm doing whatever, whatever kid in Oklahoma dreamed about doing, but there's nothing satisfying. I did do that my first play. And I think I sent you a page of some of the reviews and, I won lots of awards and nominated for one of the biggest ones in Southern California. Leslie Jordan, do you do you know Leslie Jordan, the actor who recently passed? He'd actually won that category that year, um, and we we'd become friends during 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 that that time. But that play, they they actually the director went to the actor studio and said, "I need a young actor. I need." the best young actor you guys got. And they said, you need Eric Sitter. So I didn't even audition for the play. He said, it's all yours. You came highly recommended. I said, I don't know, man. I didn't come to LA to do theater. Uh, let me read the script. So I read the script and I read, as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do this. And he told me who some of the other actors were in in it. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I said, let's let's do it. So that was a uh, very gratifying experience uh, and uh, quite challenging and rewarding. Uh, 
Um, that was uh, that, that was two thousand one. The Dead Boy. The play, yeah, The Dead Boy by Joseph Pintaro. Okay. Yep. And Steve Stephen Nichols and uh, Cyril O'Reilly was in it as well. Uh, and and the place it was packed so loud every night because of Stephen Nichols. Oh, wow. Because he oh. was he's a soap star. Okay. You played. You know, the he's a fine actor. He's a fine actor as well. Yeah. But um, he, you know, he was Patch on Days of Our Lives. I mean, it was it was Patch, and he was a big deal. Oh, People okay. were traveling from all over the country to see this play. Oh. Oh. And um, and we even had to extend it. In fact, it, it, it even we were running during nine eleven. Oh wow! But we we actually had to cancel for a week. And I had to determine if we we're going to continue doing this or not because different world now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. But when when my wife and I ha had our daughter, and we decided, okay, that LA's done. I'm I'm done with LA. Uh, there's nothing here for me. I don't I don't want to do this anymore. And. Um, so in short is during my my own recovery process of understanding bipolar disorder and understanding medication and how to stabilize and how to use it i had it was about a five-year nasty 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 struggle that i had to figure out and that's when it eventually led to uh, teaching again and to Volcanic Theater Pub and doing more theater and doing theater on my terms and doing the theater well I'm directing this play and I'm also in it by default because I can't I don't have a, the luxury of a lot of actors living in Bend Oregon and that's when I started just doing plays and plays and plays and plays and then I've always been interested in in making film but how it first started was one of these 72-hour film challenges. I said, you know what? Just like the putting on the hits thing, you know, I I had the driving around in my red Firebird in the 80s, and something comes on the radio. I'm like, hey, I'm going to do that. Yeah. But something came up that, hey, 72-hour film challenge, and I'm like, you know what? I can do this. Let's do it. And you go and you sit on a Thursday evening and they give you a theme or a line or whatever. And then you have 72 hours. You have to submit by 8 PM on Sunday night. So that's when I made my first film and um, then I was hooked because I knew I could do it as actor, director and writer. I knew I could. Um, I always knew I could direct and act particularly in the theater. It was uh, one of my heroes is Gary Sinise. You know, he did that a ton at Steppenwolf. <clears throat> and, my, and, and for filmmaking, it was always, my model was always Sling Blade. Like, well, this is a bit about Thornton. This, he's no slouch. I mean, he wrote, directed, and starred in this thing. And he made it for a million bucks. Like that's impressive, and he also had a twenty-minute short of the film prior to doing the feature. 
Oh, and I thought, oh, this is this is the perfect model. Like, kind of cut your chops uh, as a writer and as a director in some shorts, and then eventually, you know, jump into a feature and see where it takes you. But you know, you know, you're it's it's all everything's a learning process. But once I did the first short. Uh, micro 72-hour challenge. I'm like, yeah. Uh, okay. Particularly when you write it. it, it is challenging work. It's it's satisfying to dive into these characters. And what's really cool about it, and I don't know how a lot of other actors work, but uh, when I'm doing a play, um, particularly if the character is... <laughs> Um, quite broken and very damaged. Oh. You know, my recovery process from those characters were never pleasant. Uh, I, I really didn't have the coping uh, mechanisms or the, uh, I wasn't really equipped to deal with leaving the character. Uh, that's not how I work. I jump in and I stay in. And when you when you stay in and you believe the circumstances of these characters and their history and you dive into it and you truly believe it, your body responds accordingly. And you will get sick if you dive into these. So I had to also learn mm. uh, during the uh, uh, and this is being in and out of uh, psych wards learning how to cope with just playing these characters. So the thing about film and shooting film and writing for film is, all right, I only have to do this twice. Unlike a play, I'm going to have to do this for three months and I'm not going to make it because there's no play. There's no pretend with me. I don't, what do you mean twice? I don't I don't understand. Well, the two takes. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going to go to this scene and do it in two takes. Okay. So you guys better get it because it's all I got. Unlike in a play, you're going to go deal with them circumstances, you know, for, d depends on the, the, the play, of course, but you're going to deal with uh, a six-week run, maybe more if it gets extended. And a lot of actors... Um, are equipped and trained to where they're solid at going in and have a technically proficient performance and go out, do their thing, go to the green room, go out to the party, go home, whatever they want to do. I don't have that ability. Still don't. I have to recover because I'll, I'll be in the green room and I'll be a wreck. So the good thing about film and why I'm pushing more towards uh, writing challenging material for film, one, it's satisfying to jump in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's rewarding to um, tell the stories with other artists uh, that are all on the same page trying mm -hmm. to execute this story. And um, the recovery process 
is much shorter because, you know, uh, even in one particular scene in Bug Tussle, uh, for, for me, was particularly difficult. And I didn't say difficult, but unpleasant experience to go through. Pop, 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 poke a fucking heart. Pop, 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 suck it, you wee, I'll kick hey, your ass. Hey, 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 you want to tell a story? No, you tell it, baby. Then shut the fuck up, you weird son of a bitch. Go to Disneyland. You never told me that. Well, I mean, it was going to be a surprise. All the bright lights, the rides, you know, Mickey Mouse, Space Mountain, Mad Tea Party. Forky? <laughs> yeah, sure. <coughs> Mama never took me anywhere. No. She took me to Kern County Fair once, bought me a pickle. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I only had to do it twice. Then it was okay. Yeah. I've learned that. Yeah, you're running a play. You know, it's 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 you know it's 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 weeks of rehearsals and then weeks of performance. You get on set. John and I rehearsed a lot prior too like in zoom like this and uh and in person in los angeles so we kind of knew the dynamics of the scenes before we jumped on set which is pretty rare whoa <laughs> so, uh, it went dark oh, oh there we go because um there are so many streams that i want to follow like your life is i mean it's talk about telling stories like you've got a lot of stories in there um like but i i, I love how earlier you mentioned how playwriting and theater that was your inspiration more than anything else with the filmmaking it all came out of like playwrights are more of an inspiration to you than um than other filmmakers even and um and and now you mentioned it again how the theater is so much more interesting to you even as a writer and as a filmmaker than anything you ever did in LA and I totally get that because I mean I how can I not like theater is much more interesting than anything we could see on TV but um Oh, in the light, and you're in a room, a little small black box theater, which I prefer, yeah. and uh, you're in that room. Yeah. And you see uh, these characters right there, maybe 10, 15 feet from you, talking at the volume you and I are right now. And it's so brutally honest and so, 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 so genuine and so authentic that it's inescapable. So they can't help but become involved. And that's one thing I love about the theater uh, is the, the sweat, the tears, the struggle, the triumphs. It's, it's right there. And I think as an attendee, as an artist, as a performer, everybody involved that's inside that room, that's a magical place.
And yeah. If you can somehow capture that in in a, in a film, um, and I think it's possible. Like a lot of people like to label my work intense, and I never I never think about that. I don't I don't think about what intense is. I don't even know what that means. Oh, it's so edgy. I'm like, I, oh, it's like Reservoir Dogs. Not really, uh, but whatever. Uh, everybody needs a label, but. You're 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 right, I, and and yeah. it's even if you look the first two, like if you look at Tutu Grande and Buck Tussle, they were written more like you know shooting theater. Yeah, definitely. When Brain Slut is like the opposite. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, it's it's very visual. Thank you for that segue, by the way. <laughs> you want to talk about Brain Slut now? We could go there. Brain Slut. Brain slut, yes. Okay. And you read it? Yes, I did. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, unlike the uh, Tutu Grande and Bug Tussle, um, this is still very character driven and a very, very challenging performance. Um, but it Still, we're looking at a broken human being yeah. and his objective throughout the night uh, and a lot of backstory, a lot of history. But in writing it, um, there's, instead of being a, a dialogue-heavy script, it's more of a almost more of a visual cinematic experience than it will be uh, a dialogue heavy. I mean, there's <clears throat> there's a lot more locations. Um, there's a lot of scenes without dialogue at all, um, and I th think it's from what I'm learning more about I mean, even though i love shooting um like tutu grande i think took five hours we shot bug tussle in a day um this is going to take probably a week because it's it requires a lot more setup there's a lot more uh visuals are very very important because of the circumstance this character is dealing with um so in writing this, I think it's a step up for me as a writer for cinema where I'm really looking at motion pictures rather than uh, character study, simple, one location, uh, let's shoot it. Because that's eventually what's going to lead into a feature. I'm not sure what the first feature will be. Yet, I've got probably four scripts and a thousand ideas, but I wanted to really explore a short that is uh, not just character driven, but more of a cinematic visual experience. Because the other two films have been um, mostly performance. 
And yeah, there's some great sound design. There's some great photography in it. Uh, music, uh, you know, that um, is very effective in helping tell these character stories. This one's got a lot of great visuals, and you know, I've I've not to be a spoiler, but you know, I'm, I'm playing with color. I'm playing with uh, uh, symbolism. I'm playing with uh, 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 metaphors. There's a lot of things going on throughout the night. Yeah, that <clears throat> I think is more of a cinematic experience, visually, musically, uh, until you. And again, at the end, there's there's still a bunch of questions. Yeah, I think you're playing with reality in a way with with uh, brain slot, right? Because you're where I don't know what it's going to look like, but my my sense is that it's like we're gonna see kind of what he's seeing, what the character is, what kind of what he's experiencing on the inside. Out is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting for me when I was writing it, looking at how you can very specifically. There's nothing random ever. Shouldn't be anyway. Everything is very specific in what occurs throughout that night in brain slot everything's so specific and from the very first opening shot to the very last shot and everything that happens within that night is this character um uh, is is experiencing um now what the viewer is not going to know and how I kind of set it up. And it will change. I've already have another draft since the one I sent you. There, there are dialogue that will change. There are things that will, that will change because I'll find a better way to, to execute it. I'll find a better line that is simpler and, and better. Uh, but Every event that takes place throughout the night, you, you're never going to know is one, is this real? Two, is this a side effect? Is this an hallucination? Is this a dream? Is any of this real? What exactly? So, um, and you have a, you have a setup at the beginning between the older woman. And Nick, and what exactly is an alarm bag? And what's going to happen? And what is this pill? And you have a setup, and then all of a sudden these things begin to happen to Philip throughout the night. There's a lot of questions of what is going on. And it's all very specific to a very specific event that you see at the end that explains everything that's happened throughout the night. However, 
It's a big surprise. You really don't. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's a there's a little surprise at the end. He's like, oh, didn't expect to see that. I thought the whole thing was that. Uh, and but it for me with with and I could I could tell you uh, privately because I think I would spoil it. But there's 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 two real possibilities of what's actually happening. And if I told you one, I almost had a line in there and I removed it. I'm like, nope, that's too much information. I don't want that much information. But it, it, the journey of the mind, the journey on drugs, the journey of withdrawing from drugs, the, the journey of anxiety, uh, depression, uh, mm -hmm. mental illness, the the things that happen in your body. You know, there's a line in there, and it, it probably will change because there, there are things living inside me. And um, it's it's important that because it's it's so true when when you're experiencing. Uh, a cycle of intense anxiety or or uh, panic even uh, i used to have panic attacks don't have them anymore but um that's a whole nother story um but your mind and the chemicals of the mind and when they are altered whether it's an imbalance whether it's medication whatever's going on with your brain chemistry that cannot be balanced in the blood panel. We don't really know exactly what's going on. I wanted to express the, and you see him throughout the night, progressively getting worse. Ooh. And I wanted to show the, um, and reveal that the human brain and the altered brain chemistry and what and the and then I also address other things like pharma play and 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 uh, there there's a lot of underlying things that are inside it intentionally but the story is his journey and to the morning, which is important. And it's again, come, goes back to what I spoke about personally, the moment where you quote unquote, wake up. Yeah. Which is very, when you become present, when you truly wake up to the present, when everything's right here, right now, when that really happens, when there's no more fear, in the moment when there's no more judgment, there's there's no more worry or crap. It's just it's just right here, right now, all the time. When you really truly wake up to that, it's such a magical experience and such a liberating, freeing experience. But I don't think most people can reach that unless they 
cross that dark bridge. Yeah. And that's kind of the story I wanted to tell. Yeah. And um, let, let's go back a bit in the, the mental health journey. Because um, earlier you were talking about the doctors kind of giving you all these pills. You know, you took, I don't know. Um, just, I couldn't tell you how many. And I feel like um, with brain slut, you're really looking at, because um, he's a brain slut, right? Forgive me, because I'm new to this concept. I just looked it up yesterday. So um, it's a, it's a, but to me, that's almost like a metaphor for, I mean, I know it's real or maybe metaphor is not the right word. Maybe, maybe it's a parallel to what you go through as a patient as being. Oh yeah. You're, you're yeah. You're a guinea pig. Yeah. You're, you're a guinea pig. You're, you're, yeah. But what happens though, that, and this is this is what happens, is <clears throat> it happened to me. Um, I didn't start. I didn't go out volunteering for drug research trials. But um, you, you, again, you don't go to the doctor and get a blood panel, and it show you what all your brain chemistry is doing. Doesn't show you what tricyclics are doing. It doesn't tell you what your adrenaline's doing. It doesn't tell you what you know. It, 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 they don't have a ton of information. You know, they can they do a CT scan. They can look at the activity, brain activity, and what's going on. But the, the, there's there's not a lot a way lot to of- manage it. So they're a lot of it's guesswork. They don't know what medication. They don't know what dosage. Most of them don't have the illness themselves, so it's a te- it, it's learned from a textbook. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to be good. You're going to have to be insightful and aware, observing behavior of a patient and what's particularly wrong. So then you have to start playing with meds. And like I know so many people who are clearly not doing well and their primary physician will just randomly prescribe them uh, antidepressant. And I'm like, well, you're not qualified to do that. I mean, you can tell if I have a sinus infection, but you know what? When you're dealing with brain chemistry, you know, you need a specialist. And you need a good one. And I used to tell people, like, you need to go see a psychiatrist and, and you need to find a good one because, you know, uh, the wrong medication can make you worse. And then the where pharma play comes into it and where the, the, the brain slut portion becomes uh, dangerous is when you are given a medication that actually works, psychoactive medication. And... I, I take medication. I take medication every day, but um, when you've lived a life of anxiety and fear and depression, and all of a sudden a pill makes that go away, it's very dangerous, and that leads us to addiction and all kinds of other 
problems in our society. But let's look at the reality is, I don't care if it's uh, um, Xanax or heroin, they just want to feel better. I mean, that's that's the ultimate goal. I'm unhappy. I don't feel good. And this makes me feel good. You're sick. And the medicine makes me better. So, so when a physician, and a, particularly a psychiatrist, um, wants to find out what's going on. So when you're experience, I mean, the first time somebody gave me uh, a benzodiazepine, I was like, oh, my God. I, I, it's you, it was euphoric. I'd never felt so calm and relaxed my entire life. This is, is this how normal people feel? Because this is amazing. And then eventually there was at one point I was on, I think six pills a day, sometimes to some of them twice a day and then you felt toxic and then you then you drink on top of it then you're a complete mess so what happens is that journey of trying to figure out what's going to work for you what can you do what can't you do lifestyle changes there's there's so much of a process but when this book where I've actually found the term brain sluts called Guinea Pig Zero. Um, it's a fascinating book. And it talks about how people who are, are <clears throat> inner, it could be, for instance, if character Philip in Brain Slut, he had a traumatic event that emotionally, physically damaged him. And in the hospital, you know, he's being treated. You know, uh, he's, you know, given medication. He's um, in rehab, physical, um, that impacted brain activity. Um, so how Western medicine works is meds. It's how we fix things. So this particular character, um, uh, and, and I understand it from my own experience is that you could very easily, uh, and I think that's why we have such a, a, a problem with drugs and alcohol and, and particularly in the States is, that's how we fix things. It's readily available. It's easy to get. And there's such a stigma attached to it, which is unfortunate because you have to, again, look at it. People just want to be happy and it makes them feel better. And I think we do have to address why are you so unhappy? Because I think we are an unhappy nation. And I do think people run around with a bunch of hate and anger and anxiety and fear. And that's what you see on the news. That's what you see on the television. That's what you see out in the world. And yet we don't just discuss and say it's perfectly normal to have a bad day. Yeah. It's perfectly normal to be anxious. 
sometimes. Yes, some people have different struggles that do need to be treated, but we there are other ways to treat it and become present and mindful than becoming uh, an addict or a brain slot where you are actively seeking out drug research trials for drugs every opportunity you can get so you can say hi to avoid what's real even though what's real may be unpleasant there is a way out so that's where brain slot came from because there's a lot going on I love the fact that he has a drug agent, too. Is it's there, just so typical. Yes. Is there a connection between brain slut and second sleep? Yeah, it's the same same story. Oh. Second sleep, well, it's a different script. Okay. Entirely different script. Same story. Um. Second sleep never got completed. Um, we had shot. We I know we'd shot the opening scene with actor uh, Fred Lane. Uh, he's good. He's a good friend of mine. So he came up. He 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 was playing Nick. Um, we had shot that opening scene, and I really prepared for this role, and he was. He was a mess. And I, I was kind of a mess, too. Um, then I think during the production, um, the, the co-director was uh, just kind of disappeared. And we don't even know where the footage is. Oh, wow. So it just didn't get finished. So we, we, he had made a trailer. We were all very excited about it. There was a lot of press about it. And so this is the opportunity to, um, uh, retell well, actually tell the story in a short form and really examine the potential to make a feature story because there's a lot, a backstory and a lot going on with uh, Philip. And um, so, yeah, it's the same. And I, I changed the title. <clears throat> uh, Bracelets are actually very... I want to know what that means when I see it. Like, what is that? Second sleep was simply a metaphor of, uh, I don't know if you term, you know, when people um, um, used to do a lot of their trading in the middle of the night when it was cool. So they would go to sleep, wake up in the middle of the night, do their trading, when they're wagons and horses, and then 
when it was cooler, then go back and have their second sleep. Okay. And I thought it was a fantastic title of he's he's asleep. He was born and he was awake. Now he's in his second sleep. And we need to wake up. Yeah. And I thought it was, uh, but I just think bracelet. It's it's going to have a. Uh, um, um, a more rapid reaction, particularly in the festival circuit, of what is that? I gotta. Is it a horror film? Is it what? What is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's enticing to know yes. what exactly a brain slit is. Mm-hmm. Second sleep is you know even though I, I still love the title is you know I think it's like it could be a wallowing melodrama. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I like the title Brain Slut. I it uh cuz it got me, you know, I immediately went and googled it. So what is a brain slut? <laughs> well, it'd be hard to find. I mean, I I think Urban Dictionary, I think somebody put something up in there about it, but yeah. there's very little about it. Yeah. If you look at the uh but when I was reading when I when I read a lot there are certain terms that come out, jump out at me. And I remember reading this Guinea Pig Zero book uh, and Brain Slut came out. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what is that? That's beautiful. <laughs> and it it jumped out at me like, um, like when uh, titles are important to me, but I don't. Uh, I, I'd rather have them intriguing and kind of. Uh, when you Google, it's like the only thing that's going to show up. I kind of like that idea. It's kind of like volcanic theater pub. There's not another volcanic theater pub in the world. Yeah. yeah. So when you Google volcanic theater, we're going to be the only thing that pops up. Tutu Grande was similar. Um, uh, I didn't even have a title for it, but I went and we were ready to shoot and I went on Amazon going, I need to find a, a, no, I went to Google large man's tutu. First thing that popped up was tutu grande title. It was it. I'm like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Gotta have that. Gotta have that. Buck tussle was, uh, it's, it's a community right outside my hometown. Speaker of the House, Carl Albert, was actually born there. And so it does kind of represent every small town America for me. Um, It also, the reference to the Beverly Hillbillies, which which is ideal for them dreaming to go to Beverly Hills, where they're not really going to fit in. And also, I think we talked about that. I love the idea that that Fighting with bugs and tussling with bugs is very similar to always dealing with your demons. So brain slot, I think, is the same thing. It's like I don't think there's going to be anything else on the internet. Yeah. Except brain slot. If you bug if you bug tussle, there'll be other things that pop up. But yeah. If you do a bug tussle movie, it's the only thing that's gonna pop up. 
Yeah. The titles are important, but I think you really got to uh, uh, be careful and not, you know, people do it all the time. It's so, it's so generic. Even the name of their business. Yeah. You know, you, you be, you know, be original. Yeah. Because when you're dealing with the world of the uh, World Wide Web, <clears throat> you need to be found. So you do have to consider a title. True. Um, all right. So speaking of the Volcanic Theater Pub, um, it it came out of um, you had the actors realm and that, that was all kind of tied in, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> when I moved to Bend, you know, like what's an actor from L.A. going to do in Bend, Oregon? So the first thing I did, there's a community college uh, in Bend. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they have this... Uh, community learning, continuing education portion of the the college. So I started teaching there, teaching classes. The classes became very popular. Then I ended up with three, four classes, I think, uh, covering different topics of acting and storytelling. And then I discovered that when these classes ended, because usually they were only like six weeks, uh, uh, once a week, you're not going to learn anything really in that short amount of time uh, about what we really do. So, but they all wanted more. So people were pushing me into, hey, let's make this a weekly studio thing. I'm like, okay, so I rented a, a, a space. And then that's what created the actors' realm. And out of that became Volcanic Theater where we were doing plays and pubs. So I think the first one was a mammoth play called Bobby Golden Hale, um, uh, where we did it. I think first one was Silver Moon Brewing in Bend. And then we did a zoo story, Edward Albee, uh, in a, in a pub. Um, I think a few locations actually around town. Um, and these were all using my uh, uh, students, and uh, I would be there on their stage because most of them had zero experience. Mm. All they knew was how I worked, which was beneficial because they they weren't corrupted. You could take somebody's been doing a community theater for twenty years; it's going to be impossible to say stop that. Don't do that bring it down, they'd have to relearn the entire craft because they've been taught to present, which is actually the opposite experience. Um, So it was beneficial that knowing that the audience is just the flies on the wall. They're just in the room. They're overhearing their performances. It's just between you and me now, man. Just you and me. All we have to do is be together. You need to want something. I want something that's conflicted, and we're going to have drama. And once they learn that, when we start doing the plays, um, 
one of my students is a dear dear friend of mine still is was an architect and he wanted out he said to me one day hey you know that pub theater thing you always talk about i said yeah he goes you want to do it i'm like what he goes I, i'm gonna i'm gonna leave my job and open up the theater with you i'm like okay i said let's do it and so we had to find a location and he'd been in a couple of plays with me, Zoo Story and Bobby Golden Howe. Um, he was fascinated uh, with the idea of having a pub theater. Um, and it grew from, uh, from like when we first opened, we were doing film screenings and live theater, live music. It just blew up because um, I, 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 I don't think one they experienced a great deal of uh, theater like what we were doing in fact it's pretty rare anywhere you go mm -hmm. but they certainly have experienced something so real um, may not have been their thing but they knew it's something. Whoa, this is dangerous. It's suspenseful. It's intense. Um, the space itself, because he was an architect and I was essentially a contractor. Uh, so he would go, oh, I think we need to do this. All right, I'll put it in. And we essentially built it ourselves. So we found an old warehouse, built it ourselves, we were most of the labor, and then uh, we opened up a theater. Did I lose you? Uh -uh. Okay. I think we're okay. We have about seven minutes left. Okay. If if you're okay with it, I'd, I'd love to keep going, but if, if you have to go, I totally understand. <laughs> so. Oh, we can keep going. I have... Okay. Um... <clears throat> Nothing going on. I got I got to make a couple phone calls, but later on. Oh. But yeah, we're good. Okay. Yeah. So the volcanic theater pub. That's that's pretty incredible. Um, and now you've uh, you're that's kind of that chapter is 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 closing, right? I mean, <sighs> are you still kind of you're you're not involved with it at all, or it's it's done. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, selling it was the whole point was to get out. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, I still deal with, um, emails, yeah. messages and things like that. Um, pretty much every day I have to explain I'm, I'm no longer the, uh, oh, I'm no longer the, uh, the owner. I'm no longer the talent buyer. I'm no longer the manager. Um, and uh, agencies and artists still contact me and say, "Hey, can you help me with this?" I'm like, mm. "Dude, I'm I'm out." You know, um, <clears throat> and I think it was um, in short, pandemic was 
for any theater, any gathering place was tough because especially in Oregon, you're shut out. You're done. You're not, you cannot open. That was for a year. Then, oh, you can open for half cap. I'm like, well, I don't have any thing to put on. And is it safe? Yeah. And then, oh, then you're closed again. Yeah. And you're open back up. And then, like, you know, and it was so stressful. And that, in addition to not doing any performances, any play performances uh, and film screenings, I mean, we do some film screenings, but opening up the pub theater was always about having theater. Everything else was a bonus. Um, but we got so popular so quickly because we designed the room uh, with with acoustics in mind first. Then aesthetics became second. We wanted to keep the warehouse black box feel. We wanted to sound good. We needed the sound to be soaked up. So especially in the theater, with actors talking at a normal volume, you wanted everybody to be able to hear it. Uh, but it really translated really well to music. People loved playing in the room and agencies. And all of a sudden, I don't know, within three, four years, I was, uh, we were doing 250 events a year. Maybe more, because we were so sought after doing uh, live music and you know, uh, you know, other type of live performances, where I didn't have time to rehearse, or I didn't have time to go. Oh, I need set away, set aside three weekends so I can do this play. Because everything is booked so much in advance. So when you're booking these emails and they're just coming in every day, you got hundreds of emails. You're just like, okay. I became a booking agent. I became a talent buyer. And it was fun. But that's not who I am. And what I learned is, and isolation is a big thing for me, is when you isolate me, away from people, away from connectivity, away from self-expression, artistic expression. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't do well. Yeah. I need to, I need to have that. So being at the theater and around people and around other artists, whether it's music or, or, or whatever, um, was still healthy. But it got to a point where I was just, not, I mean, I'd shot a couple little short films with these, uh, uh, but I, I wasn't pursuing what I think I was be was supposed to do. Yeah. So it was time to give. It was time to give it up. That that makes. And it sense. was, you know, it's it, it was your baby, and it was, you know, it was kind of a tough decision to go. Okay, I'm out. Um, but 
the future and the potential for everything that's the doors that are opening up for me now is so much more exciting than you know you know running a, a theater in Bend, Oregon. Because I'm going to be I'm going to be all over the place. I mean, I'm a, I'll probably be I'll be probably a festival director. Uh, for a film festival, I'll probably be a music agent, you know, uh, just booking talent. Um, I'll probably be working as an actor again, um, probably doing more theater. I mean, it, it's it's just opened up a whole bunch of opportunity again, which is very exciting. And I'm traveling a ton. I mean, it's just it's it's it was it was it was, a, it was the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. Not that 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 it was essential to the community and important to the community, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, and I think they were very grateful for the theater. Uh, <clears throat> but it just was it wasn't healthy for me to keep running it. Okay. So we talked about um I think we got to all of your films and we managed to get in Volcano <clears throat> Club and we talked about mental health <clears throat> and which I could talk about all day with you. <laughs> um, this yeah. is fine. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you were basically kind of like the John Dennis in Bend, Oregon. Would you say is that kind of a good... I don't know. I mean, you were teaching acting at the community college. You you started the actor's realm. And then you kind of put on your business hat and did the volcanic theater works um, with your architect friend who helped you build that. Um, and then, but now it's like, you know, you're kind of tired of, of the entrepreneur hat and you want to go back and do the more, go, kind of go back to doing what, I guess, you know. Well, yeah. So, my, I think if you go as far back as uh, as a teenager to now in my mid fifties, the one constant theme for me is I create. That's that's who I am. Um. I often ask, where do you come up with that shit? I'm like, well, that's the internal question, right? I mean, I don't know. It just comes out. What else would you um, <laughs> Yeah, It's what I do. Yeah. And it's what my brain does. Now, whether bipolar disorder has anything to do with it, I, I don't know and don't care. Um, I, love the, I, I, I love how David Lynch describes it. <clears throat> he describes creativity because I, I so when he when he when he said it, I went, I understand that dude. Hmm. Um, he said, and I and I, and I, I do I, I do meditate. Uh, I have to, but <clears throat> he talks about transcendental meditation a lot. He has a uh, actually a film school. That focuses main focus is on writing and transcendental meditation. Um, but he he said ideas 
and he's he's very visual probably much more visual than I am in his approach um, but he he'll, he'll start with 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 pictures he'll see something and he he talks about for me it's vocal I'll be driving around on my motorcycle or in my jeep I I don't have radio on I don't have music on I daydream I allow things to just come out and I talk to myself a lot and that's some oftentimes where a piece of dialogue could start an idea and Lynch describes it as there's an idea it's not a story but it's an idea but it's a little bitty one but that though that went in it's like fishing and that fish is going to catch a bigger fish. So that went in, and that's going to catch a bigger fish. And the fish keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally have a story. And <clears throat> you don't know, again, where they come from originally or even how they evolve. Sometimes it's just sitting down and writing. And things just start flowing and, and coming to you. Other times, David Mamet describes writing, uh, which is also, I'm like, I understand that. He says, uh, when you're writing, uh, you have an idea, and but all of a sudden you get stuck. And I always get stuck. I'm like, what do I do now? And he goes, you're going to get stuck. But here's the great thing about it. You are going to find a way out of it. Because mm -hmm. the character's got to find a way out of it. And you're going to find a way out of it. But here's the great thing about it. The audience is going to get stuck too. And they're going to wonder, how the hell is they going to get out of it? I'm like, oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's no not only normal, it's beneficial for the story. Because it moves the audience to go... What's he going to do now? How's he going to get out of this mess? Yeah. So I love the idea of how um, how similar many artists are in their creation, and then also how different we are because of where we come from. Like my stories usually, um, uh, if you have a recurring voice in it. You know, they are broken, damaged people and usually rural America. And <clears throat> if you look at Mammoth, almost always Chicago. Uh, Shepard, he loved the West. Uh, Steinbeck loved the Dust Bowl Oakey area like Bakersfield and Vesalia and up and towards uh, Northern California, they had specific voices and recurring themes. And it, it's 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 fascinating to me. It's like oh, like I love I I I hope to someday capture this. Um, but I love seeing an image from a film. Have you ever seen uh, 
played the game framed? No. It's very similar to um, Wordle. Every night, framed puts up an image. Hmm. Screenshot. And you get six guesses. What film that is. Oh. Some you go, boom, know what that is. Some are so obscure, you're like, what? that could be anything. I don't know what that is. Uh, maybe I haven't even seen it. But what I do love is when I see a trailer or an image from a film, I can identify that director right away. Like, you, you only need one image to know a Wes Anderson film. It's just, it's Wes Anderson. Like, I know who that is. Again, it becomes more of a cinematic motion picture visual experience. Uh, sometimes you 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 know what a Scorsese film is. Many people try to, like when they did Joker with um, Joaquin Phoenix, they try to replicate tra Taxi Driver because the overall feeling of being in New York is so vibrant in, in Taxi Driver. You know, you always know you're in New York in a Scorsese film. Sure. Differently than Woody Allen in New, in Manhattan. It's a different New York. Yeah. Spike yeah. Lee, Tim Burton. Immediate. You know it's a Tim Burton film in one image. I'm like I know I don't know if I'll ever be that visually minded as a director. Um might be uh, more like a Darren Aronofsky, who is more of a character-driven <clears throat> film director that, yeah. uh, you know, Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, The Wrestler, yeah. uh, The Whale, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, uh, uh, I have to say this, there's a, uh, <clears throat> do you remember, Remember American Playhouse was a television program. It was similar to Masterpiece Theater. American Playhouse <clears throat> would have these Broadway shows, but they would go on set with their video cameras and shoot and edit and piece together the play and put it on TV. Well, they did. Now, I was already a big fan of Steppenwolf at this time. Um, but they had a production of True West, the original, with Malkovich and Sinise. Sinise directed and also played Austin, and Malkovich played Lee. Nobody knew who either one of these guys were, but they showed up on Broadway. And then Malkovich was instant stardom. Malkovich had never auditioned for a role in his life. Hmm. True West just catapulted him into stratospheric star from that one performance. Hmm. I watched that so many times that it probably could have ruined my career 
because I found it as an acting Bible because the way they approached it. And I tried to share copies of this VHS tape to everybody I ran into. You have to watch this because Malkovich is brilliant. He's stunning. The performance is a little self-indulgent. But um, that approach, that American Playhouse production of shooting a play, like, oh, I want to do that. I think where that's where everything started for me is, oh, you can definitely write a play and shoot it. A lot of people adapt, many, many, many people adapt uh, plays into film. Another Steppenwolf actor, Tracy Letts, who's from Oklahoma, mm -hmm. his plays are all adapted into film. Uh, there's August Osage County, because he's a Steppenwolf, and he wrote that specifically for the cast of actors they had at Steppenwolf. He wrote it for that. He wrote Bug, uh, if you've seen that, with... Uh, Oh, uh, what's the girl's, uh, uh, I, I love her. Um, oh, she'll come to me in a minute. Um, but, uh, John, John Patrick Shanley, also a playwright that I absolutely adore, his films like Doubt, a parable with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, when you, look at the their character driven dramas with you know limited locations i'm like oh this is ex precisely what i want to do yeah and that's probably what i'll continue to do uh but utilizing my own imagination and my own visuals i see in my head and and always being character driven and always uh focusing uh, on story. And for me, story is always, and for me, I always break it down, even to my students, to five things. And <clears throat> it starts with character. Number one, always character, character. What does he want? What does he want? One person wants one thing. Start there. There's your story. That's your plot, too. Their journey of getting what they want. It, it's Fundamentally, it's pretty simple. Executing, not so easy, but pretty simple. Then you have obstacles in their way. That's drama. That's conflict. That's what tells the story. Then you have stakes. How? Well, what happens if they get or don't get what they want? That's That creates suspense. That creates the, the intensity. And it then creates... Uh, it, um, the vitality of what's happening in the story, um, any good story. And then, then you have your um, how they get what they want reveals the type of person and type of character they are. It reveals, can reveal a whole biography of who these people were and who their parents were and and then 
finally, it's commitment. Personalize it. Mean it. If you start there with those five things, you can tell a good story. You got to be passionate about it. And I think all the great voices of uh, American uh, film directors and the great writers and the great playwrights, great theater directors, almost all of them move into film. I, I can't think of I can't think of any that haven't. I mean, Shepard, Sam Shepard did it. Martin McDonough has done it very successfully. Um, Albie, I mean, who's, who's afraid of Jamie Wolf, is an enormous cinematic uh, film. Mm. Um, so that's probably going to be a through line for me is shooting that way. Film students learn something completely different. They 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 approach with they learn uh, camera technique, which lenses do you use? You know, uh, it's it's a completely different process than an actor's approach. So when you see an actor directing, um, even if they're directing themselves, like you know. Um, Gary Sinise, he directed him and Malkovich in Of Mice and Men. And it's a fantastic film. Yeah. And of course, you have Clint Eastwood who does, you know, a movie every year. Um, <clears throat> Spike Lee's in a lot of his own movies. Um, but I think that experience as an actor and studying scripts and dissecting plays and dissecting characters gave me the opportunity and knowledge to actually have confidence to sit down and write something and be heavily influenced by people, but also have my own voice and understanding that this is what I'm going to write. Like sometimes John would question in Bach Tussle, like, what is this? What is this? I don't know what this line means. I don't know what this means. I'm like, well, he's intoxicated, John. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody intoxicated that just all of a sudden just goes off on something? It's like, where are you? And I had to explain. It's like, why does everybody have to be so mean? Oh, yeah. You can't trust nobody. He goes, where does that come from? I'm like, because John... He just realized he's been screwed over and he's in, he's intoxicated again. And I said, just take a deep breath and tell the universe that. And he took the note. And that's when you see him up to the, the gods. Gosh, yeah. Why does everybody have to be so mean? So being a writer and having the confidence as a writer is growing. But again, still always heavily, heavily, heavily influenced yeah. by playwrights and Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights that are damn good at what they do. Yeah. That that would be always my goal. To be a Gary Sinise, to be a you know, a Martin McDonough. And Martin McDonough's an interesting story, his plays, you know, I've done several of them. <clears throat> His first film was in Bruges with uh, 
Colin Farrell. Mm -hmm. um, same cast that's in Banshees of Inisherin. Mm -hmm. But he based that story on The Dumbwaiter by Harold Pinner, which I'd also done. So it's always fascinating to me to find out where these people get their ideas, their influences. And I'm like, oh, th th we're, we're not all that different, really. Yeah. We're, we are, our processes and how we get there are differ. But the, the, the creation, when you are an artist, when you are a creator, you know, I think everyone has something in common process is probably a little different but our in, how we're influenced it's that's such a big deal though how we're influenced yeah yeah our childhoods um the people we ran around with you know the, the people we dated the people uh that that shaped uh, our adolescence and then into our teenage years and then into college and then into adulthood and marriage and having children. I mean, all these things shape us who we are in addition to, you know, your struggles and your triumphs. And and I think I think we always go back to our roots. Yeah. It's interesting to me. Yeah. And we've done I've done banshees hmm. back in Ireland where he's from. And I think it's his best film. And we all, he's hes always going to go back there. And he should. And Sam Shepard always wrote about his dad. It was such a profound thing for him. In every play, he mentions his dad. And he may, always mentions him not being there. Oh. So would, would you ever go back to Oklahoma? <laughs> <laughs> see my mom mm -hmm. and then that's it I mean I um, <clears throat> I love where I'm from I embrace being an Okie I love a lot of people there um, my childhood was was, was good um, it, I found out, was much different than people that once I got to college and understood that people actually got along with each other, <laughs> that families weren't always angry at each other. Um, families, they were like my wife's parents, for some I'm like, oh my God, it's Ozzy and Harriet. I didn't know these people existed. Um, it's it's a different culture for sure, but I lo I love the fact that that's that's where I'm from. But it, uh, it, there there just wouldn't be a great deal of opportunity there for me. Um, I love my mom, and yeah. there's a lot of people there that uh, friends you know you went to school with, and I don't I'm not real close with any of them. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'd go to visit. I'd love to see a lot of people, but no, I don't. I, I certainly wouldn't live there. Yeah, not to live there. Yeah. No. Yeah. 
get that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's complicated. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'd go back to Louisiana before I go to Oklahoma. Cause okay. it's Southern Louisiana is culturally rich. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. there's a lot going on. Oh yeah. Um, Cause we, I, I, I haven't we haven't talked about it but when i went to uh when i decided to go to grad school i had lots of options actually but um i chose lsu because in one of uh, john dennis and because of the culture uh, i was fascinated with new orleans and and, and southern louisiana mm -hmm much more than the other places uh but i wanted to experience that um vibrant swampy yeah, yeah. bluesy Interesting. Yeah. Brio, Cajun. I, I just wanted to dive into it. So I was <clears throat> first semester, first play, main stage, I was the lead. And I I don't know how I did so many plays at LSU. Okay. I I was I was actually going from a main stage production to rehearsal for a black box production. Then after that, I was going to band rehearsal or to a gig. And I did that for three years. I was, so in addition to the classes, I was in play rehearsals almost every night or in production almost every night and then going to a black box production and then going to band rehearsal and then also teaching advanced acting uh, to undergrads. So um, I was so busy in three years there. I, I did so much that I, I look back on it once I was diagnosed with bipolar and after people were making comments about me in graduate school, Everything made sense. I'm like, of course I did it. Okay. Of course I double majored in undergrad because I had the energy to do it. I was doing five plays a, a year and double majoring. Of course I did it. I had the energy. He's like, oh, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, just do it. You look back on it and go, oh, I was manic. Of course. Yeah. In your 20s, your body can handle it. Hmm. You could just go. And you had a lot of... I I had the innate ability before even the training um, to believe those circumstances very quickly. Realism was came easy to me quickly. The other stuff wasn't so easy for me. But you give me Sam Shepard, 
Mammoth, Tennessee Williams, you know, I, oh, I'm, oh, I'm in there. Give me Shakespeare. I'm like, okay, what the, what is this? Okay. Wait, 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 I don't know what this is. Huh. Um, I remember Barry Kyle telling me I was doing uh, Hamlet, and he said something. Eventually, it made sense. He goes, huh. Derek. You are, I feel, therefore I am. He said, you, you're like, you get on an emotional uh, surfboard. And you once you hit that emotion, you just start riding it. We have to go, Derek, Derek, Hamlet's over here. And you go, okay. And you start riding it over there. And everything was just guttural and visceral. And everything had to be that. And he said, not everything is method acting, Derek. I'm like, yeah, it is. So you played for Hamlet in the play? It was, no, it was uh, uh, scene work. Oh, okay. In class. uh, From, and Barry, that Barry was teaching. Um, And it was an Owad Rogue speech. And it was, but, and even even JD said something to me once we were doing Chekhov and uh, I was playing Trigorin, the seagull. And all of a sudden I was, uh, you know, I, I just started banging my head on the table. And I was, I was there. And he stopped. Derek, what? What are you doing? I don't know. I'm upset. And he's, he just shakes his head. Derek, not every character is from Oklahoma. And I thought he was talking about my accent. Oh, oh, okay. Later on, I realized, oh, this is turn of the century Russia. People just don't randomly go around banging their head on stuff. This is a different culture. So the the experience at LSU, not only did JD is so insightful and recognized who I was very quickly, American realism came easy to me, where the other stuff was quite the struggle yeah. because I, I had to believe it and, and feel it. Pretend was no... No, didn't work for me. Technique didn't work for me because I felt if you could passionately thrust yourself into an objective, all the other elements of the acting craft fall into place. You'll be heard. You'll know where to go. Your blocking will be taken care of. Everything's done. That's how I work. And to this day, that's still how I work because it it's where I'm the most effective as an actor and probably as a writer and a director. The the other stuff, they talked about epic theater and like, you know, I, I didn't find any use in it because Barry and JD could not be any more different. And when Barry cast me in the first uh, big main stage production and I was playing a Nazi, SS officer. 
but it was completely different work. And I didn't understand, I didn't understand it. I do, I do now, yeah. of course, but at that time, everything was just outrageous and intense and dysfunctional and broken and just, and I'm still, I still deal with those people, but I understood that not everybody's from small town Oklahoma and not every play or character is written that he, because J.D. said, I'd like once for you to play a bank teller because I'd like to see you play somebody where there's not something wrong with them. I said, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know why I would. So that was the, that's where it all started. I play broken people. I write about broken people. Broken people. Damaged, outrageous circumstances that to me aren't that outrageous. Yeah. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know those people. You, you play like your your thing is the broken people who who are broken. Like they're not they're not hiding it. They're not. I don't know. Is that is that what you mean? They're visibly, yeah. noticeably broken, broken, damaged, and um. Like not every character is different. I mean, it's some. I'm much more subtle about it. Like with Chekhov, much more. Yeah. Like with Chekhov, it's like the characters are like there's like a repression. Is that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's there. It's I mean, there, there. People forget that they are comedies. Yeah. And. The repressed and the depressed of these these characters in these worlds, you 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 have discovered Chekhov. And once you've realized Chekhov, same with Shakespeare. Once you and I did, I learned about Shakespeare. There is once you learn the brilliance, the genius of Shakespeare, and trust the meter, and trust the rhythm. What happens to you internally is is written in the music of the rhythm of the meter. So you just trust it and it'll take you there. You don't have to, you know, dive into it like you're doing uh <clears throat> Tennessee Williams. You you trust the meter. Um Chekhov is the same thing as you you have to trust turn of the century Russia uh, at that time and understand that this is how these people behaved and silent dysfunction is much more difficult to portray than the outrageous dysfunction but once you learn how to do it, like I was doing a main stage play called Mad Forest at LSU. 
in one of the scenes, the director said, I don't want you to move. I said, what? I don't, don't move. Just stay still standing the entire scene. I'm like, no. Because that's not who I was. I've never done that before in my life. I'm not, what? And I did it. And it felt uncomfortable as hell. And I kept doing it. I'll send you a picture. It was me uh, and Sean Bridgers. Sean Bridgers from uh, Deadwood. Uh, Do you know Deadwood? No. Um, So Sean's had a pretty successful uh, uh, film television career. And we did quite a few plays together. And um, anyway, what I learned was... If you take all the energy that I had and focused it and just stood still and put every single ounce of it into your objective, it actually became more powerful than somebody that was more kinetic and, 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 JD taught me that, particularly for for film, that that's why you see a performance like Tutu Grande, where he's very appears to be very grounded, yeah, but he's very very dangerous, yes, because of the stillness. Unlike Koi, oh. who's complete opposite, yeah, and yeah. you know and. You when you learn when you learn those techniques um, in different circumstances, different characters, uh, it it and when you're writing, not just for yourself but for other characters, you've got to really put your mind and go, okay, mm. this is not how I would do it because this is a completely different character, probably one I'm not going to play. And then you have to write that down with the same energy and stillness and understand that how the performance is going to go. So like in Bug Tussle, <clears throat> Risley didn't know who's going to be Crow or Coyote. I, I, I didn't have it cast. And probably was going to play uh, Crow. Um, but then John said to me, I like put my head in if you ever do this for Crow. But then it came to a time like, you know what, guys, let's shoot this thing. And I just called up John and said, hey, you want to do this? Yeah. Well, this is when we're doing it. Can you do it? Yeah. All right. And I called up Taylor. So this is when we're going to do it. Where we're going to do it. Let's do it. And by God, I'll, I'll, just, I'll play Coyote because it's during a pandemic. The fewer people we have on set, the better. And there were six of us, three cast members, three crew members. It was it one day. And <clears throat> playing Coyote with John was uh, uh, a whole lot of fun because Coyote's a... Uh, He's he's unhinged. He's he's 
he's he's in a spectrum too. There's 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 a lot going on with that guy. Oh, you you had the best costume in the movie, that's for sure. <laughs> took me forever to find that shirt. Took me forever to find that shirt. Uh, it was it was actually a women's shirt. Oh. Uh, uh, and I had to wear you know really a lot weight, wore really baggy clothes to make me appear even smaller. Um, because I want him to be that little wiry, little, you know, almost meth addicted, little, you know, kind of uh, unhinged guy that might just pop off at any moment. Uh, and innocent and childlike, not Lenny, yeah, but still simple, innocent, childlike, yet dangerous. And that's that was kind of the goal with okay. with Coyote, and to 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 you know understand him, and he you know he he's kind of funny too, you know he's yeah, and the the script was written to be you know um uh I don't say a comedy for sure, but uh, it was written the circumstances. It's pretty outrageous. Dark comedy, yeah. Well, it's, it's, well, it's, it's absurd. Beverly <laughs> Hills is an hour and a half down the road, guys. Just yeah. FYI. It's not that long of a drive. But yeah. for them, and I understood this, it's like when I grew up, people going to Tulsa was a major life decision. I'm like, just go. It's 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 eighty miles, but for that, for those people with you know in poverty, wow. that dream of just going to Hollywood or Beverly Hills was a major major obstacle and a major risk for them, and for a lot of people, it seemed impossible. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, uh, this was the abrupt end of the interview. But as Derek said, he said it best, endings are beginnings, new beginnings. Thank you for watching or listening. Bye.